We're only one week into 2017. Are we still like excited about it? Yeah. 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 How are those resolutions going? I'm not a resolution person. How, how are yours going though? <laughs> right, yeah. So like um, common ones are like working out more or starting to work out if you don't work out at all. Um, you know, eating well, eating better, eating, having a cleaner diet, something like that. Maybe spending less and saving more. Um, those are all like very good decisions to make, right? Like, like we're not going to argue about that. Um, and it's hard to do. Isn't it hard to do the right thing, though? Like, I, I enjoy working out. I really do. But, um, man, if I don't get to bed early and, oh God, I just want to sleep in a little bit more. And then if it gets too late, my son is up and I need to help my wife with, with him. And it's, it's hard to do the right thing in a vacuum, isn't it? Like, it's hard enough to do the right thing in a vacuum, isn't it? And isn't it even more difficult when you have all of these external forces around you? The culture is beating down your door, trying to get you to just forget about standards. You're supposed to live a God-honoring life, but you just forget about all that. Just do, do whatever you want. Do what feels good. The path of least resistance. I love the path of least resistance, but it's not always the best path. And so I think we're starting off this, this year at Church 214 on the most perfect foot. I have to give it up to, to Heather and the rest of the teaching team. Like, this was not my idea. Um, but this series about the countercultural life of the prophet Daniel is so perfect for the start of this year. And as I've been studying this book for the last two or three months, I've become increasingly convinced that living a countercultural life, a God-honoring life, is not possible unless we establish and maintain a countercultural identity first. Let me say that one more time because that's a lot to write down in your notes and you should be taking notes. Maybe that's your resolution for the year. <laughs> Living a countercultural life is not possible unless we establish and maintain a countercultural identity first. Now, I don't know for sure if that's right or not. I, I think it is and I think my sermon backs it up, but I'll leave that to you to decide whether that makes sense or not. And, and we know this, right? Like we form our identities from many different sources like our, our spouse and our kids and our career and our lifestyle and our talents and maybe even like our role at church. And those are all wonderful things to be a part of your identity. But the foundation of your identity determines everything else. And all of those wonderful things that are a part of your identity, a lot of times they're gonna be conflicting interests. And most of the time, they're going to be fighting amongst themselves to try to get to the bottom, to try to be the foundation of your identity. But I believe that we have to know who we are and whose we are. And we have to constantly remind ourselves, find ways to remember that, because the challenges in life are, will cause you to forget. And so right off the bat, I'm just going to give you the answer as I see it. Okay, it's, and it's going to be up on the screen, so it should be easy to write down. And some of you may have seen this statement before or heard this statement before. It's, it's fairly popular if you 
Google image-like cute things to put on the wall of your son's <laughs> bedroom. And it, is on the wall, it was on the wall of my son's bedroom until we moved, but um, I believe that as Christ followers, our identity boils down so perfectly into this one statement. And it goes like this, I am a son of the king. I am a daughter of the king who is not moved by the world. For I know my God is with me and goes before me. And I do not fear because I am his. I am a son of the king. I am a daughter of the king who is not moved by the world. For I know my God is with me and goes before me. And I do not fear because I am his. Now that's not a direct quote from the Bible, sorry. But it is based on truth from several passages. And, and I... My, my, my son, I'm not, it's not a joke, that, that, that statement actually is the son version of it. it. It was on the wall of my son's room until we moved um, last week. And like he, he's eight months going on nine, and he does not understand this yet. We will definitely use it. I've spoken it over him before. But he, he doesn't understand it yet, but I have to tell you that I have needed that every day. for the last five months. And so this sermon is for me, probably more than anyone else in this room. But if someone else is helped by it, praise God. And I believe that someone else needed to hear that today. Maybe, maybe for the first time, maybe for the millionth time. But you need to walk out of here really grasping onto that and never letting go. You need it. But before we go any further, let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your truth, the truth of your word. God, we thank you that you're here today to teach us. God, help us to leave this place knowing that our identity must come from you and you alone. The foundation of our identity must be from you and you alone. And help us to learn from the life of your son, Daniel. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to be studying the book of Daniel for the next several weeks. And I get the privilege of starting at the beginning. And I have, I have five points today. That's a lot, I know. But you'll survive, I promise. And so, what, point number one, it's kind of long again. I'm not sorry this time. A countercultural identity must be established early because it will be attacked often. Or maybe you can shorten it if you're taking notes to identity must be established early because it will be attacked often. And I want to start in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. This is, most people agree that this is Daniel's autobiography. And so a lot of this is in the third person, but you kind of have to remember that Daniel's the one writing this about him, the things that he experienced and the things that, that he and his friends went through. And so let's pick it up in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. 
And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. That's super important. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, or Babylon, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Identity, once again, identity needs, needs to be established early because it will be attacked often. I believe this because if, if you wait until everyone else tells you who you are, if you wait until culture tells you who you are, guess what? You're going to be whoever they tell you you're going to be. They will. And our identity determines, I said this before, but our identity determines everything that we do. Every decision you make, every action you take, every word you say is driven by your identity. So you better have it right. Because adversity is going to come. We had to wait one verse. We had to wait exactly one verse before Daniel's identity was attacked. In verse 1, his national sovereignty was removed. In fact, it was conquered. The people of Judah were conquered by the Babylonians. His national sovereignty was removed. We have no idea what that's like in this country. And then in verse 2, his religious sovereignty was conquered. Okay, the vessels of the house of God were taken from the temple of God and they were taken to the, the treasury of a false god in Babylon. So right before his very eyes, the things, the things that the priests of Israel, of Judah, used to worship God in the temple were removed from that temple and taken to the temple of a false god. It, it's sort of, it's not exactly the apples to apples comparison, but it's sort of like somebody coming in, taking away all of our chairs, our instruments, our lights, our cables, even if, you know stuff that you don't see back hidden back here, uh, the blue barriers that corral all the kids in the other room. They just take, took that all away. Now we could still have church, we could, but it just would it would not feel like Church 214 normally does, and so Daniel's national sovereignty conquered his religious sovereignty conquered but his faith was intact because they can't take that from you again they can take away all this stuff and make it very difficult to do church I can still preach we can still sing okay so this is an incredible amount of adversity and so how do we not just survive in the face of such adversity, but thrive in the face of this adversity. Because if you read on in the book of Daniel, you will see that he very clearly thrived as a captive in a foreign land. Well, and I believe if we, we're going to keep going and we're going to see how Daniel was absolutely equipped to do this. And also, I think we can learn how we can be equipped to do it too. So Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. 
So we know from this passage that Daniel had to be a member of the nobility or the royal family. So he has maybe came from a wealthy family, a well-to-do family. He was very well educated. He was, in verse 4, a youth without blemish. Most scholars agree that he could have been as young, as young as 16 years old when he was taken into captivity. Just got his driver's license and can't even use it. <laughs> right? He was a youth without blemish. So he was, he was young. He was healthy. He didn't have any disabilities. He didn't have any injuries. He was of good appearance. He was good looking. He was fit. Skillful in all wisdom. This is huge. A skill. So Daniel was gifted in wisdom. But a skill is something you're gifted in that you have practiced and developed into a skill. So Daniel was gifted with wisdom from God, but he had practiced it. He had actually used it. And it had developed it into a skill. You might be gifted with all kinds of wisdom, but if you don't use it, it doesn't do a lick of good. Okay? He was endowed with knowledge. He was well-educated. He was smart. He was very intelligent. He, this, and this is huge, understanding, learning. Not only was he intelligent, he had learned how to learn. Probably, if I was going to pick a skill here, uh, wisdom, it's tough to argue with that one, but you have to learn how to learn and how to keep learning. And lastly, competent to stand in the king's palace. He was professional. He was well-spoken. He knew what to say, when to say it, how to say it. He could read a room. He was good at dealing with probably complex personalities like a king. Absolute rulers usually are very tough to deal with. Okay? <laughs> at 16 years old, he had all of these skills. That is incredible. And he gets, we'll see later on that he would have three years of training and then at age 19, so if he's 16, at age 19, he would graduate from this program, and he would then join the king's cabinet at the age of 19. Think about that. In the biggest empire in the world at the time, from one of the greatest rulers of people of all time, at 19 years old, he's in the cabinet. Now think about how old everyone in Washington is. <laughs> like you're not even allowed to be 19 years old and be in, in the cabinet or anywhere close to the federal government. I'm not saying that'd be a good idea to just open that up, but, but, but we just, this, is, this is very different than what we are used to in this country. He was an exceptional young man. Rare intelligence, rare wisdom, rare leadership skills. And we know that these are rare traits for a teenager. It's okay, you can laugh at that one too. They're, they're, they're rare traits for teenagers. They always have been and they always will be. But notice I said rare, not impossible, not unheard of. Because if we train, if we truly train our children in the way that they should go, by the time they reach their teenage years, they can possess rare intelligence, rare leadership skills, rare wisdom, or some other gifting that God has given them that you as the parents and the aunts and the uncles and the grandparents and the church family, the support system around them has encouraged in them and grown in them. This is not impossible. And, now, and you may think that, that you're not nearly as gifted as Daniel was and so how in the world can I possibly get something like that out of the kid that you have given me? <laughs> I, that was not supposed to be funny, but it, <laughs> that was like a serious one, but man, all right. Um, and 
But even if that's true, that does not mean that you still can't teach your children and model for them what it means to pursue greatness in your calling that God has given you. You might be called to just be a mom for the rest of your life. I wasn't gonna say this, but I, I heard a story once about a young man that, a man that had been, he's, he's, I don't know, he's a millionaire, billionaire, super successful businessman. And he talked about his upbringing. He was raised by his grandparents. And every morning he would sit at the breakfast table and his grandpa would sit across from him. He had the paper. And he couldn't see his grandpa's face. He was just, and, 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 I, and when I heard that, I was like, I don't know. That feels a little bit, that feels a little bit like kind of cold and sort of no, no connection. He would come to find out later that his grandpa couldn't read. But by that example, didn't even say a word. He learned the value of knowledge, the pursuit of knowledge, of learning. His grandpa is now 93, still can't read. But his son has become this massively successful businessman. So don't worry about whether you're as gifted as Daniel is. What you need to worry about is asking God for lots and lots of wisdom and lots and lots of grace to teach your children well for the time that you have them, to teach yourself for the time that you have left because it's God's plan for their lives, not yours. Let him worry about the destination. Let him worry about the timeline. It's God's plan for your life, not anyone else's. It's God's plans for your children's life, not anyone else's. We don't know much about Daniel's parents, but do you, but do you think they planned to only parent him until he was 16? Do you think they planned for the Babylonians to come and take him away? No. Yet, Daniel was clearly prepared for all of this. Clearly equipped for all of this. And so that must mean, it's not in the Bible, but it, it, to me, that mean, it has to mean that his parents, his grandparents, his aunts and uncles, his support system, his church, put in some serious work between the time he was born until the time he was 16 years old because he was clearly ready for this. He didn't just magically become this amazing 16-year-old. God gifted him greatly. Yes, he did. But some serious work was put in. Some serious parenting. Some serious support and growth was put into this man, this young man, before he was taken away. Number one, identity must be established early because it will be attacked often. Number two, a countercultural identity requires a resilient memory. Okay, we need to establish identity early because the attacks are going to come often and the attacks are going to keep coming and they're going to be very subtle and psychological in nature. And so we have to have a resilient memory. Remember, we cannot forget Daniel chapter 1, verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called 
Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. And I want to talk about the food in a little bit, but I need to talk about the names first. Daniel's name was changed. And, and conquering rulers did this back then to help assimilate captives into their culture. And they did it on purpose. Not to just like, oh, yay, like, speak, Babylon, like, speak Chaldean, speak Babylonian, we'll give you a Babylonian name. No, it was an attack on their identity. You were used to be a Jew. You used to be Hebrew. You're a Babylonian now. It was a sign of having power over somebody. And these names were not chosen at random. It wasn't like, well, we'll just give you the, you know, you were John, and now we're going to call you the Babylonian equivalent of Rick or something. Like it was, it was, he chose these names on purpose, and you have to look at the meanings of the Hebrew names and the meanings of the Babylonian names to really get this. I love this part. Let's look at Daniel first. Daniel's name in the Hebrew means, God is my judge. And Belteshazzar means, Bel protects his life. Bel was one of the Babylonian gods. So Daniel's name was strongly connected to his god, and it was changed to a Babylonian name that was strongly connected to a Babylonian god. This was on purpose. How about Hananiah? Hananiah, I love this. It means Yahweh is gracious. Again, strongly connected to the one true God. And what you'll see in some of these other names is, is that not only was the, the, the God changed that it was connected to, but the feeling and the attitude in the name changed as well. Yahweh is gracious, a beautiful picture of God reaching down to be gracious to his children. And his name was changed to Shadrach. I am fearful of Aku, the moon god. Yahweh is gracious. God reaching out. The direction changed. Uh, the, the direction of the interaction changed. Yahweh is gracious. I am fearful of Aku, who will punish me if I don't, if, if I don't please him. How about Mishael? Who is what God is? That's my favorite one. Who is what God is? Meshach. Who is like Aku? That one right there, that one's easy. That is the exact same name. The meaning is exactly the same. All they changed was the God. I'm telling you, they did it on purpose. And then lastly, Azariah. Again, a beautiful picture. Yahweh is a helper. And Abednego, servant of Nebo, the shining one. The God changed and the attitude changed. The direction of the interaction changed. This was all on purpose. Here's, what the, here's why this matters to us. Because names don't mean as much to us now. They can take a lot of things from you. They can take away your ability to do church the way that you want to. They can even change your name. But they cannot take your faith from you and you better not let them take your identity from you too. Your identity is up to you and you alone. Doesn't matter what the world calls you. Doesn't matter what name they choose for you. You can choose the identity that the culture gives you or you can use a, choose an identity that God wants to give you. And you can see this so beautifully in these names and how they were changed. And, and Daniel got this. He, he did not, the name change, he sort of accepted it, but you can tell that he, it didn't get to him. Because if you read on through the book of Daniel, you will see this phrase that he writes a few times. Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. 
as if to subtly tell us as the readers, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you call me Belteshazzar, but I am Daniel. You say that Bel protects my life. That's fine. God is my judge. Okay. Identity requires a resilient memory. Number three, a countercultural identity does not compromise. In chapter 1, verses 8 through 16, I'm not going to read it, but we see the famous food experiment. And in verse, in verse 5, we, remember, we, were, we see that he was a, they were assigned food from the king's table and wine from the king's table. Again, subtle attack on the identity. The king did not care what food they ate. He cared about where it came from. By forcing them to eat the food from his table, what he was telling them, subtle attack on the identity again. God was your provider before, Jehovah Jireh. God was your source of food. I'm your source of food now. God was your source of drink. I'm your source of drink now. God was your source of life. I'm your source of life now. God was your God before. I am your God now. He did it on purpose. Daniel and his friends, of all the things, so they saw their religious sovereignty removed. Their names were changed. And now they have this food thing. And of all the things that he was asked to compromise, this one would have been by far the easiest because Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful person in the world at the time. He probably had the best food in the world at the time. And it was probably healthy. But because of the law of Moses, Daniel and his friends were forbidden to eat it. But they could have easily rationalized this away and say, hey, you know what? We can eat it, but we won't mean it. You know, we can, we can eat it, but it's not going to affect our, how we, our faithfulness to God or how we view God. Because it's really what matters is in our heart, right? It doesn't matter what we do on the outside. It only matters really with, on the inside. But he didn't do it. They did not compromise. And I love that he's got a little bit of engineer in him because he proposes an experiment. And they, do, and they do this 10-day experiment and they eat vegetables and water and everyone else eats from the king's table. And at the end of the 10 days, God blesses them and they eat vegetables and water and somehow they're more fit and strong than the people that ate from the king's table, which uh, maybe they only ate the donuts from the king's table. I don't know. <laughs> That's definitely an only God moment right there because vegetables and water does not make you, in my mind, stronger and more fit than like, I guess if you are eating donuts, then it would work. But that's definitely an only God thing, but that's, that's, that's the point, isn't it? A countercultural identity does not compromise. Number four, a countercultural identity is strengthened by an army. We're moving into chapter two now, and we see the story of the first dream of Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel has to interpret. Back in chapter one, we learned that, um, I didn't cover it, but Daniel was specifically gifted in interpreting dreams. And they, so the king is having this dream in chapter two and it's bothering him and he doesn't know what it means. And so he calls all of his advisors in and his advisors are not like, his cabinet was a lot different than what we have now with the president of the United States. Like there was magicians and astrologers and palm readers and tarot card readers and like glowing ball, I, I don't know, fortune tellers. All these like weird magic stuff, <laughs> you know, he's like, I have this dream. Okay, I have this dream. It's bothering me. I don't know what it means. I need you to tell me what it means. But in order for me to believe you, I need you to tell me what happens in the dream. I'm not going to tell you what happens. So you need to read my mind and then tell me what it means. Ultimate psycho king. 
And of course, no one can do it because no one can read anyone's mind. And so they freak out because the penalty for failure in any sense with the king is death. Along with their families and their homes are gonna be destroyed. And they can't do it and the king's angry. And so in verse 12, let's pick it up in verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Verse 14, I love this. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent. Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. I, like, if I was Arioch, the, the captain of the guard, they, just, they obey absolutely without question every time instantly. They don't speak, they just do. But they weren't like mindless idiots. And so like Arioch, I, if I was Arioch, I would have been like, okay, so let me get this straight. You've got this dream, it's upsetting you. No one can tell you what it means yet. And you wanna kill everyone that could potentially tell you what it means. So then you still won't know what it means and we'll get a new batch of wise men who also won't be, tell you, be able to tell you what it means. What, whatever, man, like that, that, that's not gonna, okay, fine. <laughs> like we're not, we're further away from the goal than before. <laughs> and so I'm sure he thinks he's crazy and, and, and Daniel kind of has similar reaction to like, whoa, 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 why? He replies with prudence and discretion. He's calm. He's professional. His life is on the line. He's about to be killed. But he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hey, just, what's going on? Why, is, what's, why all of a sudden everyone's going to be killed? It's so consistent in his character and his attitude. And we need to fight for this too. I know there's personality differences. I can be a fairly animated person. But you've got to fight for that level-headed consistency. And his life was on the line too, and he knew he needed help. And he actually asked for it. In this country, we are terrible at knowing when we need help. And in the off chance that we actually decide we need help, we're even worse at actually asking for it. And this is so important, guys, because again, a countercultural identity is strengthened by an army. And you're probably wondering why I keep using a strong term like army. Because Daniel only had four people in his army. It was him and his three friends. But in these kind of battles, in these kind of wars, you don't need a big army to win. You just need a good one. You don't need a big army. You just need a good one. And in verse 17, it says, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. He immediately goes home and asks for help. He didn't do it alone. His friends prayed for him. And by this time, we can clearly see that Daniel has chosen his friends and his confidants wisely. He was exposed to a lot of brilliant people in Babylon. His three friends never changed. He had chosen three friends, an army, that had proven themselves to be wise and loyal and faithful in their own right. And God 
grants, God is gracious to them. He's faithful to them and he gives Daniel the dream and the interpretation and Daniel sets up an appointment with the king to tell him. And skip down to verse 26. The king, so he's, at, he's, he's with the king and the king asks him, the, the, it says in 26, the king declared to Daniel whose name was Belteshazzar. There it is again. Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, no, no wise men Enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Daniel doesn't even take credit for it. Daniel inserts himself merely as the mouthpiece of God. He doesn't say, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, I know. He didn't even say, God has told me. He says, God has made it known to you. So, just again, such consistency in his character. He knew who he was and that God had got him there. Nebuchadnezzar gives him credit anyway. <laughs> he goes on to give him the dream very accurately and the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar, for better or worse, gives him credit. And it says in verse 48, if we skip all the way down to 48, it says, Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. So he gets his promotion. And because of his promotion, he's kind of separated from his three friends. And he knew that wasn't a good situation, because again, identity is strengthened by an army. He had to keep his army together somehow. And so he asked the king to promote his friends. But even with that cool arrangement, Daniel had to stay at the court, and his friends had to kind of go out from the capital city and sort of govern in the surrounding areas. And so even though these job roles changed and the schedules changed and, and the promotions kind of changed everything, they were gonna see each other less. But Daniel made sure, because he had the opportunity, he made sure that his army stayed together. You don't need a big army. You just need a good one. And number five, a countercultural identity leaves a legacy. Now I want to talk about Daniel chapter three now. I'm not going to cover any specific verses, but if you've read it before, you might have caught that Daniel doesn't mention himself anywhere in this chapter. And so you might even be asking, well, if this is about Daniel, why are we talking about a chapter where we don't really learn anything about him? Well, that's not totally true. Because I think this is a picture of Daniel leaving a legacy even while he's alive. I believe that Daniel's identity and his consistency rubbed off on his friends. Yes, they were faithful and wise and loyal in their own rights. But Daniel was the one kind of in the middle of it in chapter one. 
Daniel was the one in the middle of it in chapter two. They remembered the food experiment and they remembered the dream and how God had showed up. And if you read chapter three, you see that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond exactly like Daniel did. Very calm, very consistent. Their lives are on the line too. And again, how about this? You think the, the food experiment was one thing. This one was easy. When the music plays, bow down to the golden image, and all they had to do was kind of just look like they were bowing down to the golden image, they could have been, they could have been singing banner, you know? <laughs> in their minds, you know, in their minds, right? They, they didn't have to mean any of it. That was the easiest out ever because no one would have been able to know whether they were actually worshiping in their hearts or not. But they didn't do it because their identity had been established early, knowing that they, it was gonna be attacked often and they had, a they had developed a resilient memory and they had practiced not compromising before on much, easy, much more difficult things in much more difficult situations and their identity had been already strengthened by an army. The three of them, Daniel was away, but the three of them were still together. They had practiced this before and they responded like it. And the king tries to kill them, but they don't die. God saves them. And because of their integrity and because of this incredible display of power by God, Nebuchadnezzar promotes them again in the, in the, in the, in the empire of their own right. Daniel wasn't really involved at all. So again, three men, very great men in their own right. But Daniel's identity had rubbed off on them. And so when we get this army, we need to genuinely press into them. We need to genuinely connect with them for our own good and for the good of everybody else in our army. Because my countercultural identity is gonna rub off on everyone else's countercultural identity. And their countercultural identity is gonna rub off on me. That's how the army is strengthened. And that's the type of legacy that, that I wanna leave. I want to be known as someone that strengthened the people around me, that encouraged the people around me, not weighing them down or tearing them down. And so I leave you with this one question. Do you have a countercultural identity or not? The world, the world tells you that it should be anything else except the only option that makes any sense. Your identity must be in the one who, who made you and named you and saved you. Because if it's not, whatever you, and whatever you choose is taken from you, you've got an identity crisis on your hands. And we all know what that feels like. Moms, if your identity is, is wrapped up in how well your kids behave and how clean and Pinteresty your house is, what happens when you, your kids move into a season of disobedience and your farmhouse kitchen isn't quite farmhousey enough to meet the Chip and Joanna Gaines standard? <laughs> and that color of gray you chose for the living room walls is a little bit too gray or not gray enough or <laughs> identity crisis. Or maybe, 
Maybe your career had so much potential. But you haven't climbed the org chart as fast as you thought you deserved. Or that dream job keeps eluding you somehow. Or maybe you were laid off. And you don't know if your career is ever going to get back on track the way it was. You don't know when it's going to come. You don't even know if you're going to like the job offer you get. Or if you're going to get paid as much as you thought you should get. If your career is the foundation of your identity, you've got an identity crisis. Our identity has to be in the one who made us and named us and saved us. And we get, we get a beautiful picture of this as parents, don't we? Now, this is Kale, and he's excited about the lights. There we go. Okay. Yeah. I know God made Kale, but just roll with me for a little bit. When you, when you make something in your image, like he, he kind of looks like us. And when you give him your name, Becca, Carolyn, Schaefer, Philip, David, Schaefer, Kale, David, Schaefer. When you make something in your image and give it your name, You would do anything to save it, wouldn't you not? You would die for your child, would you not? And someone has already willingly died to save you because you need it. So in choosing the foundation of your identity, we would be foolish to choose anything else or anyone else than the one who made us and named us and saved us. Because nothing else, no one else, will ever be able to stack up to that track record. And so as you leave today, I hope you understand that you are a son. You are a daughter of the king who is not moved by the world, for you know that God is with you and goes before you, and you do not fear. Because you are His. Let's pray. God, we 
so badly. We so badly need you. You have always been there. You have never left. God, I thank you for men like Daniel who can show us what our identity needs to be and how to keep it. And God, I thank you that you have made us in your image, that you have given us your name as sons and daughters of you, the King. I thank you that you are with us and you go before us and that we have no reason to fear because we are yours. May we latch on to this identity and never forget it. Never let it go. In Jesus' name, amen.